Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. There is a place deep in the heart of the Honduran wilderness called La Mosquitia. For hundreds of years, it has been known as one of the most impenetrable, unexplored places on the face of the earth by Central American tribes and Western explorers alike. In the 1920s, an explorer named Edward Consemius was one of many who ventured into Mosquitia seeking fame and fortune. He was convinced that he would find success because he had befriended one of the locals who lived in one of the scattered settlements outside the jungle. Over shared drinks, this local told Consemius something incredible. If one could travel up the winding rivers that trailed into the valleys, If, after those rivers gave out, one could endure the endless weeks of travel through the bush on foot. And if one was willing to leave all the trappings and safety of modernity behind, then behind that curtain of rainforest sat La Ciudad Blanca, an undiscovered ancient city with walls of marble and carved sigils of a culture lost to time. But there was something else hiding in this lost place. Something besides priceless artifacts and hidden histories. Something dark. Something deadly. A curse eventually revealed to be a horrible disease that would strike down any who tried to shed light on this mystery. When our bodies fail, we trust doctors to diagnose the problem. But medicine isn't always an exact science. Sometimes it's a guessing game with life or death stakes. This is Medical Mysteries, a ParCast original. I'm Molly. And I'm Richard. Every Tuesday, we'll look at the strangest real-life medical cases in history and the experts who raced against the clock to solve them. 
As we follow these high-intensity stories, we'll explore medical research that might solve the puzzle. Next week, in part two, we'll analyze all the evidence and try to find an answer. You can find episodes of Medical Mysteries and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Medical Mysteries for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Mysteries in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. This is our first episode on leishmaniasis, a sometimes lethal disease caused by parasites that eat away at the body. This week, we'll learn of a modern expedition into the wilderness of Honduras. The explorers sought a lost city, but returned with more than they bargained for. Next week, we'll dive deeper into the history of this parasitic disease and observe how, even today, our divided geopolitics and cultures could easily lead to an uncontrollable global pandemic. The land stretches outward beneath the sky for 32,000 square miles. There is a diverse ecosystem hidden within the heavy canopy. Rivers feed into swamps under the watchful gazes of jagged mountaintops. The fauna ranges from prowling jaguars and leaping monkeys to the unfathomably microscopic flies and insects only visible to the naked eye when they cloud together in great buzzing numbers. Within those buzzing flies are bacteria and parasites, both deadly and dangerous in their own rights. One specific parasite, colloquially called white leprosy, is particularly pernicious and worth avoiding at all costs. The beauty and the disease are all part of Muscidia, a patch of jungle that has remained unchanged and untouched by humans for hundreds of years. Mere miles away, in the rest of Honduras, bloody coups shook the government Natural disasters and poverty brought the nation to its knees, and eventually, ruthless drug cartels rose to power on the back of the chaos. But like a shield, the unforgiving terrain of Muscadia protected it from any such corruption. At least, that is, until the 20th century dawned and the Western urge to map the world took charge. The unexplored would become known. Douglas Preston admirably charts this exploratory history in his book, The Lost City of the Monkey God. He would soon join these other explorers' ranks in plumbing the depths of Mosquitia. Edward Consamius's 1920 expedition failed when he couldn't find a local willing to lead him through the maze-like passages of the jungle. But his journey unleashed a flood of rumors through the archaeological community. There was more in Mosquitia than just jungle. According to rumor, hidden deep in the wilderness were the ruins of a lost civilization, sometimes called the City of the Monkey God, but known mainly as La Ciudad Blanca, or the White City. Archaeologists, anthropologists, and treasure hunters alike couldn't resist further speculation. The closest known ancient site near Mosquitia was the Maya ruin of Copan, 
The Maya Empire extended down from Mexico into western Honduras, where Copan was located. But it had always been assumed that the Maya never made it into the interior of the country. Into the 1930s, only a few explorers had ventured far enough into Mosquitia to collect information on the ruins supposedly hidden within. They kept watch for what rumors had described as large marble barriers, like tusks of white bone jutting up from the green earth. However, the only structures ever sighted after the 1930s were mounds of earth shaped into what might have been temples or homes. And even these were always observed from a distance, with miles of jungle still blocking the way. Such findings weren't exactly exciting for those who wanted to become rich. They wanted to find the White City, not a collection of earthen mounds. This is what motivated Theodore Mord, who returned to America in the 1940s with artifacts he claimed to have found in the ruins of the White City. However, the writer Douglas Preston later uncovered that Mord had actually used his expedition's funding to pan for gold in Honduran rivers. When a flood washed away his stake, Mord and his collaborators quickly gathered together any old objects they could find and made false claims to the New York Times about the legendary city. For the next 40 years, that was the final word on whether or not the White City was actually real. Mosquitia became protected territory under the Honduran government and UNESCO World Heritage. To mount any exploration into this area required one to pass through a lot of red tape. Although drug cartels, looters, and environmental exploitation were kept at bay, so was most research. This all changed thanks to an ambitious and obsessive filmmaker named Steve Elkins, who decided it was his destiny to uncover Mosquitia's secrets. In 1994, Elkins took a boat up one of the rivers in Mosquitia. Although his crew wasn't able to make much progress, Elkins spotted an old stone carving along the shoreline that displayed a man in a headdress planting seeds. Now, without a doubt in his mind, Elkins had proof that an advanced culture had resided in Mosquitia at some point in time. He bribed and negotiated his way through Honduran bureaucracy and managed to gain a permit for an expedition. But then Hurricane Mitch devastated Honduras in 1998. In the political chaos that followed, Elkins lost his chance at an expedition for almost 12 years. It took two miraculous breakthroughs to get it back on track, one spiritual and one scientific. A new president, Porfirio Lobo Sosa, known as Pepe Lobo, had just come to power in Honduras in 2010. The Honduran wife of Elkin's business partner cornered Lobo at a church gathering and pitched the venture for the White City as a way to bring together the divided country. Meanwhile, in the United States, Elkins stumbled across a new piece of technology called LIDAR, or Light Detection and Ranging. Initially used by NASA to map the surface of the moon, it had recently been utilized to scan a jungle in Belize, revealing the Maya ruins buried within it. 
The National Center for Airborne Laser Mapping, or NCOM, agreed to lend out the technology along with an engineer named Juan Carlos Fernandez to run the scan. With the Lobo administration's oversight, the scan was conducted in May 2012. The results came back highly positive. The laser mapping technology was able to put together a higher resolution portrait of what laid beneath the thick jungle canopy. Elkin's team identified two distinct areas in Mosquitia, dubbed Target 1 and Target 3, that showed evidence of both pyramidal structures and ancient plazas. With this data in hand and the permission of the new Honduran government, the expedition was finally back on. So Elkins assembled his team in February 2015. On the filmmaking side, that included producer Bill Benenson and sound recorder Mark Adams. The scientific side would be headed up by Chris Fisher, LIDAR engineer Juan Carlos Fernandez, and the Honduran archaeology chief Oscar Neal. Finally, working press for National Geographic were photographer Dave Yoder and Douglas Preston, the author of the book that would soon chronicle the endeavor. In February 2015, Preston was on the first helicopter flight into Target 1, colloquially known as T-1. The pilot, a Honduran national, chatted with him as they approached the landing zone. With a grin, he recited the old story his grandmother told him. The Spaniard invaders had reached Mosquitia and the White City. But they made a mistake. They picked the flowers. And then, whatever evil lurked within the city took their lives. But of course, that was just an old legend, right? As the helicopter lifted up, leaving Preston behind, he couldn't help but notice, to clear this landing space, all the flora had been leveled and cleared. They hadn't just picked the flowers, they had destroyed them. When we return, the expedition team learns of the many deadly diseases that lie in wait in the jungles of Mosquitia and tries to determine if there was any historical truth to the legendary curse of the White City. And now, back to the story. It was February 2015. An expedition put together by filmmaker Steve Elkins had assembled and flown into the remote jungles of Mosquitia, seeking evidence of a fabled and supposedly cursed lost city. Deep in the midnight black of their first night in the rainforest, the members of the Elkins expedition huddled around a single lantern. Ex-British Special Forces Commander Andrew Wood, known as Woody, cycled through the dangers they faced as they conducted their search for the lost white city of Honduras. The countless flies and mosquitoes with a single bite could inject a thousand potential infections into the body. Then there was the snake known as the fer de lance, an aggressive species that actually seemed to enjoy biting and killing larger animals. The writer Douglas Preston listened with growing fear. When they were back at a hotel, the risks Woody spoke of seemed so ridiculous and far away. But now, 
the crew all applied another layer of military-grade DEET bug repellent, while Preston checked again to make sure his Kevlar snake gaiters were properly secured. And then, as if Woody had summoned it with his paranoia-inducing instructions, a hiss filled the night air. A six-foot-long snake shot out of the tall grass toward the expedition. With expert precision, Woody grabbed the beast by the neck and sliced its head off. He and his military teammates pinned the decapitated head to the ground as its venom could still shoot out over six feet even after its head was severed from its body. It was only their first night, deep within the area known as Target One, but the expedition had already faced the threat of death. The rumors of the curse of the White City suddenly seemed very real. In the morning, lead archaeologist Chris Fisher led the group through the jungle and across a small stream into the area mapped out by the airborne LIDAR technology. This was it. It had to be. If the White City existed, it was somewhere within this jungle. And yet, all someone like Preston could see at first was green. It took Fisher's expert eye to point out what lay beneath. Centuries of overgrowth tried to keep it a secret, but there were structures all around them, man-made. Although the rumors of pale marble ruins seemed overblown, this had to be the source of the White City legend. Fisher hypothesized that T1 and T3 were once linked in a huge, sprawling collection of settlements, all under one unified culture. The archaeological team began to dig. Soon enough, Preston spotted the leering eyes of a jaguar glaring up at him. It was not a living beast, but a stone one, an idol buried in the rainforest dirt. The expedition had already stumbled upon their most important find. Beneath this ground lay a cache of ancient artifacts. More than 500 objects would eventually be found in this single site. The more Fisher and his team dug down, the more history came to light before their eyes. But there was something strange about all these artifacts. Every single one of them was destroyed, smashed into pieces. And in Fisher's professional opinion, none of this destruction seemed like it was wrought by the passage of time. All of these cultural objects had been destroyed intentionally and, as later carbon dating proved, simultaneously. This was a ritual site that meant something significant to the local culture, and its rituals signaled the end of times, the end of the White City's culture. Now the question became, what caused this sudden end? We must follow the chain of history back to Columbus's second voyage to the Americas in October 1493 and the pandemic outbreak of disease he and his fellow Europeans brought with them. This time, Columbus had far more than three ships. He brought an entire fleet with thousands of men and even more livestock. Less visible immigrants included a battalion of pathogens and infectious agents 
that had never had the chance to experience the new world. These bacteria and viruses had gathered strength for centuries in the old world, killing millions. But due to long-term exposure, the death toll in Europe and beyond had eventually slowed. The people of the old world became far less susceptible to falling ill. This was not true for the indigenous peoples of North, Central, and South America. In his account of the time period, Douglas Preston compares the New World population to a tinder-dry forest waiting to burn, and Columbus brought the fire. Dozens of first-time illnesses swept into the Americas, from typhus to dysentery to measles and tuberculosis. The island of Hispaniola, now divided between the Dominican Republic and Haiti, is a case study in destruction. Historians estimate that in 1492, there were at least half a million people living on the island. A decade into the 16th century, that number had already been reduced to 60,000. And yet, the gravest blow of all had yet to arrive. At first, doctors might mistake it for the flu. The victim suffers from intense headaches, and their entire body is hot to the touch. That flushed skin soon breaks out into a full rash. They fall into hallucinatory states, and the fear of death comes upon them. In his book, Preston focuses on this as the defining horror of the disease, the victim's creeping sense that something is coming to take them away. The rashes across the body change and grow swollen. Soon, the body turns into one big, weeping sore. Betrayed by their own physical form, the victim becomes trapped inside the biological horror that is smallpox. They bleed out, and sometimes their body turns black, as if roasted from the inside out from the fire burning within. And because it is incredibly contagious, smallpox will then spread to their loved ones, neighbors, and strangers in an ever-growing web of death and suffering. Before smallpox struck Hispaniola in 1518, there were 18,000 members of the original population. One year later, 17,000 of them had died. Of course, disease wasn't the only killer. Slavery, rape, and the overpowering European war machine destroyed many lives. But smallpox weakened both continents for total colonial invasion. Smallpox killed at least 50% of every population it encountered, from North America to Mexico to the Caribbean to Central America. In his book, Preston writes of the Spanish conquistadors who had come across entire settlements empty of all native inhabitants. The conquistadors had come bearing death and systemic change, only to learn that their microbes got there first. There is no doubt that such a plague of endless diseases also affected Honduras. It was Columbus, after all, who gave the area its name upon his arrival in 1502. It meant the depths. Into these depths, the old world microbes dove, 
Preston points to the geographer Linda Newson and her study titled The Cost of Conquest as the definitive look at Honduras during the outbreak period. There was a population collapse of 95% after Spanish colonialism from nearly 600,000 people to 30,000. Of those 570,000 deaths, 400,000 were caused by disease. It was the ultimate unforeseen weapon of the conquering forces. But what did this mean for the naturally protected land of Mosquitia? The Elkins expedition determined a few key facts that frame the possibilities. Archaeology and cultural information dates the oldest settlements in the area to 400 or 500 CE. Native dialects in this area of Honduras accord more to Mesoamerican tribes from the south than the Mayan dialects that proliferated to the west and north. However, interestingly enough, as the Maya city-state of Copan declined around 800 CE, it seems that the culture of Mosquitia grew in size and scale. Archaeologist Chris Fisher from the expedition team that uncovered the important artifact cache believes that many thousands of people lived across the area that makes up T1, T3, and beyond. It's possible that as the Maya Empire dwindled into obsolescence around 1000 CE, pre-Spanish conquest, the remaining Maya exiles entered Mosquitia seeking refuge and buoying the numbers of this reclusive culture. This assimilation may have also opened up the Mosquitia culture to trading with other tribes in Honduras and beyond. And yet? The cache of destroyed cultural objects speaks to a civilization-wide crisis sometime in the 1500s. Historically speaking, the only likely candidate seems to be smallpox or a similarly devastating pandemic. As Mosquitia expanded, it also let down some of the cultural barriers that had shielded it for so long. Though it grew to be a complex and thriving culture in its own right for over 400 years, this opening up also made it vulnerable to the diseases of the old world, even though the old world never even knew it existed at all. For Preston and others on the Elkins expedition, this seemed to explain the myth of the cursed Ciudad Blanca. He writes, Viewed in the light of these old-world pandemics, the white city legends are a fairly straightforward description of a city, or several, swept by disease, abandoned by its people. As a result, local Mesoamerican tribes outside of Mosquitia came to believe that something inherent to the area doomed it. Like the Aztecs before them, they came to contextualize the massive and misunderstood sicknesses brought over from the old world as a curse and judgment handed down by the gods. Thus, in late February 2015, as Woody ordered the expedition's end in light of coming rainstorms, Preston and the other explorers had to satisfy themselves with this explanation. The lost city, like many others in the Americas, was destroyed by the cultural advancement of the old world. As their helicopters took off and T-1 receded beneath them, the expedition had to pity this old culture, 
wiped off the map by something it didn't understand. It seemed, despite it all, Moschidia was more defenseless than it had first appeared. But what they did not yet understand was that Moschidia had more secrets yet to be revealed. Though they had left all the artifacts behind as Honduran bureaucracy sorted out what to do with this discovery, an invisible remnant of the lost culture followed the expedition back home in the form of a deadly parasite. When we return, we'll see how members of this expedition slowly began to realize that Moschidia still had a hold of them, and its grip might be both permanent and deadly. And now, back to the story. In late February 2015, the expedition organized by filmmaker Steve Elkins and chronicled by writer Douglas Preston returned from the previously unexplored jungles of Moschidia, deep within Honduras. Their archaeological discoveries would soon shed light on the history of the lost culture that had thrived within this hidden place from 400 CE to 1500 CE. Within two days, the group had uncovered a dig site full of artifacts that pointed to an explanation for the end of this culture. It was likely that Moschidia, like many civilizations across the New World, had been wiped off the map by smallpox. This had led to the legend of the curse of the White City. But now, the mystery of those legends had been wiped away. Just as the Old World brought the initial destruction of Moschidia, modernity now exposed the leftovers of this culture to the eyes of the globalized world. While the rumors of a curse and the impossibility of mapping the jungle had previously kept away explorers, scientists, and looters alike, with this discovery, the floodgates were about to open. But as the mystique of the lost city faded in the light of day, a new story was about to emerge from the jungles of Moschidia. After taking his first shower in weeks, the writer Douglas Preston joined his family in Paris for some well-deserved time off in March 2015. But as they took in the sights, Preston's mind was preoccupied by the bug bites that covered his entire body. While he was in the jungle, even his heavy-duty survivalist tent couldn't keep out all of the insectoids that swarmed through the warm rainforest air. After a few days in Paris, Preston's steps began to falter. Soon, his temperature rose to over 103 degrees. Family friends rushed him to the nearest hospital with a tropical disease specialist. He was beyond the incubation period for most diseases prevalent in Honduras, except for malaria. Embarrassed, Preston had to admit to the doctor he had stopped taking his malaria pills during the expedition, believing it would be rare that any bugs in the area would actually carry that disease. His blood was drawn and analyzed, and it turned out Preston had been right all along. He didn't have malaria. The doctors told him not to worry. Being in a foreign country, especially in a rainforest climate, makes travelers prone to fevers. It doesn't always spell doom. In April, 
Preston returned to his home in Santa Fe, New Mexico. By now, most of the bug bites had faded away, except for one on his left arm. And in his own account, Preston wrote, it seemed to be getting redder and bigger. Despite his fears, Preston reconnected with the other members of the expedition and asked, did anyone happen to be experiencing something similar? In a flurry of phone calls and emails over the next month, it was determined that photographer Dave Yoder, archaeologist Chris Fisher, sound specialist Mark Adams, LIDAR engineer Juan Carlos Fernandez, and a few others were all displaying similar symptoms. Even survivalist Commando Woody and one of his ex-military associates were in the same boat. Although there was doubt about what it was, there could be no doubt that they had all contracted something specific in the jungle. To cross-examine evidence, Yoder sent Preston a photo of his own sore on his leg. It wasn't a pleasant sight. The former bug bite was festering, and no antibiotic seemed to stop its growth. And then Yoder asked Preston a question. Did he remember the briefing Woody had given to the expedition before they left for the jungle? Woody had called it white leprosy, but its official name was leishmaniasis. With a single bite from a sandfly, the leishmaniasis parasite could be injected into the human bloodstream. In the most dangerous variant of the parasite strain, symptoms steadily increase over time and eventually can cause the body to eat away at its own skin and bone. Although the locals that surrounded Mosquitia hadn't ever mentioned leishmaniasis in conjunction with the lost city, it is possible that this was another facet of the curse. The terrible affliction of leishmaniasis was most devastating in poor and medically deprived places around the world. It could easily linger and proliferate in an isolated area without making a dent in the worldwide consciousness. As more teams were sent into T1 over the next few years, biologists arrived at a not-so-surprising conclusion. The animal population in and around T1 had likely never laid eyes on human beings before the 2015 expedition. It had been hundreds of years since humans made noticeable contact with this area. That explained why all of the wildlife had been so incautious around the camp, from the aggressive fair de lance snakes to the howler monkeys that had leapt through the treetops above the explorers' heads, shaking branches and shouting down at these strange visitors. But it would also explain Leishmaniasis' presence in the area. As the expedition team's diagnosis were independently confirmed, the American members were all shuttled toward the National Institute of Health and their parasitology experts. There they would learn that leishmaniasis parasites propagate inside mammals that are known as reservoir hosts. The vector, or the sandfly, sucks the blood of these hosts and transfers the parasite. The leash parasite can remain inside a reservoir host or vector for years without causing any fatal or disrupting damage to them. It knows that it needs them to survive so that it can continue to be spread. 
Luckily for humans, leishmaniasis does take a long time to reach full effectiveness. However, unfortunately, as we are large mammals with complicated immune systems, the parasitic disease will eventually cause a reaction. And if it's the form of leishmaniasis that Woody warned the team about, that reaction would include inflammation and destruction of facial tissue. Where the old world colonists brought smallpox to disfigure and destroy the American natives, the new world would give back in kind with the white leprosy. As Preston and his fellow expedition members shut themselves away inside advanced laboratories for testing and treatment, they were soon confronted with a grim truth. Leishmaniasis could be fought, but there was no true way to fully eliminate or cure it. They had gone to the jungle to merely observe the ravages of time on human culture, but had come away as players in a historical saga that was far from over. They would now engage in the ongoing battle between leishmaniasis and life itself, a battle that had raged for millennia. Thanks for listening to Medical Mysteries. For more information on leishmaniasis and the 2015 Elkins expedition, amongst the varied sources we used, Douglas Preston's personal account from the lost city of the monkey god was extremely helpful to our research. Next week, we will take in the full scope of leishmaniasis' history from the time of the dinosaurs all the way up to the treatment that Preston and his fellow explorers underwent. You can find all episodes of Medical Mysteries and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast Originals like Medical Mysteries for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Medical Mysteries on Spotify, just open the app, Tap Browse and type Medical Mysteries in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Medical Mysteries was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Liebeskind, Maggie Admire, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Medical Mysteries was written by Jack Bentel and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rosner.